So we're in this brand new series on Advent called Making Room. We've partnered with this artist named Bette Dickinson who has created this devotional that she's just releasing this Christmas. You can go ahead and search it, or if you'd like a copy of it, come talk to one of us. We can get you a copy of it. Uh, but we've got these beautiful pieces of art, and in just a minute, we're going to have her give us an introduction to the character that we're going to be spending some time with this morning. But first, I do just want to thank all of you for your generosity. For those who have been a part of this church, there are those here who regularly give, who tithe, who offer 10% or more of their financial income to our church, and it is literally how we stay open. Uh, I also just want to thank all of you who have been engaging with the last uh, few months. Community had, coming out of COVID, been in a, a pretty tight financial spot, as a lot of churches were, and we've really seen generosity pouring in. I mean, that Giving Tuesday number was huge, was really encouraging. It's helping not just other churches, our other locations around Chicagoland, but it is helping us stay open. So I do just want to encourage you this Sunday or next, if you've never given anything before, this is a perfect moment to start off the Christmas season as we're even talking about making room in our hearts to make room by giving something. It could be any amount. It could be a one-time gift. You could set up something reoccurring, but just want to encourage you, if you're a part of our community, Join us by entering into this really exciting invitation. Now, that said, uh, I had this question asked me by my wife, who's here. Uh, she tends to ask me the hard questions uh, that I normally have neglected or not paid attention to. And she just pointed out last week, uh, as we technically last week started the season of Advent, she said, has anyone explained what Advent is yet? Anyone else feeling just a little bit of confusion, like we are here in this season, we've been chucked in, you're in Advent, but what is Advent? Why do we call these four Sundays leading up to Christmas Advent? Why are we doing a special series called Making Room in Advent? What is Advent all about? So in order to explain Advent, I want to take you all the way back to the experience of Israel. Now just go with me in your minds a little bit here. I know most of you have probably not lived in Israel nor participated in the first century when I'm the time period I'm talking about here. So you're going to have to stretch just a little bit to get here with me. But if you were in Israel in the first century, what you had was a series of revolts that had just taken place that made you think maybe, just maybe, something extraordinary was going to happen soon. So if you know anything about Israel's history, Israel had been exiled from their land. They'd literally been plucked out by Assyrians. They'd been taken away by Babylonians. They'd been ruled by the Persian Empire, which was this massive sweeping thing, until the Greeks came in under Alexander the Great. And as Israel was slowly trickling back into their homeland, they thought maybe, just maybe, if you go back and read the Old Testament, that this leader named Nehemiah or this other priest named Ezra, maybe this was the moment when God's presence was going to be restored, when Israel would become a kingdom again, when finally the king would come back. And yet as the years went on, unfortunately, one empire was followed by another, and Israel found themselves yet again ruled over. So then, uh, as, the Al as Alexander's empire kind of established itself in Israel, as uh, Greek culture started permeating Israel more and more and more, there was this revolutionary group called the Maccabees that raised up and said, we don't want to take this anymore. We are going to push out these Greek rulers. We are tired of foreign influence taking place here in Israel. And as the Maccabees started slowly pushing back these foreign rulers, they found themselves finally establishing this new kingdom called the Hasmoneans. 
the Hasmonean rulers in Israel. And do you know what extraordinarily happened when the Hasmoneans set up shop? Nothing. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Hasmoneans, as they settled into Israel, as they started ruling, they started getting offers, bribes, uh, foreign powers that said, we'll give you protection if you give some of your possessions away. And the Israelite people, as they looked at these Hasmoneans, started to realize to themselves, this is not the kings that we have been waiting for. So finally, the Hasmoneans are going to be overthrown just a few decades before Jesus' birth because Rome has now entered the scene. And again, I'm giving you a lot of history. Welcome to the sermon. Uh, we're diving straight in. Uh, you wanted to know what Advent is, or my wife wanted to know what Advent is. And so now we're talking about Advent. Um, the Romans set up a king in Israel called Herod. Maybe if you've heard the Christmas story, you've heard a little bit about Herod. And the problem with Herod was that if the Hasmonean kings were kind of corrupted and kind of bought and kind of bribed, Herod definitely was. Herod had been placed on his throne because Julius Caesar was his friend. Herod had bought his way into the kingdom. And the worst part of all for the Israelites is that Herod was not even technically Jewish. He was an Edomite from the neighboring country. And so the Jewish people were living with this king over them that everyone knew was not actually the true king. He was simply a puppet king that Rome had set up. And so I'm going to put up here these three realities that Israel found themselves experiencing in the first century. First, Israel was still waiting. Like they'd gone through these key revival-esque moments, these hopeful signs that maybe something was going to change, but yet still in the first century they are waiting. Israel, even more than waiting, are longing. I mean, at this point, the Roman Empire has set up shop and the Israelites are paying heavy taxes. If you were an uh, agricultural farmer, if you were a fisherman, if you had crops, you were giving a lot of it back to the Roman Empire, which ruled you from afar. I mean, they longed to be free. They longed to find God's presence restored to their land. They longed to have a king who actually cared about them, who would rule them with justice and mercy. And yet, this final reality that Israel was flawed, was ever present on their mind. Because, I mean, especially this Hasmonean kingdom, they had a chance. There was this shot that Israel had to kind of get back into the swing of things. And they found that even when they took back their throne, they yet again were corrupted. They were yet again taking bribes. They yet again saw power kind of get dispersed and become tainted by all these other influences that were pressing up against them. And as I think about these three words in bold, I can't help but wonder if there isn't something for us today in these three realities as we consider Israel's experience in that first century and where we currently are now. I mean, for so many of us, we're wrestling with jobs that are overwhelming, we have relationships right now that, you know, the sweet spot between Thanksgiving and Christmas Day, whatever family members you saw on Thanksgiving that you may or may not be seeing again on Christmas Day, uh, tensions have built, uh, pressures are there, relationships are perhaps falling apart. And yet, I think the worst part about if really getting honest with ourselves is we think about the things that we're waiting for, longing for. I mean, all of us have to admit on some level, the problem is that we ourselves are the one who often gets in our own way, right? 
Like, if you actually get honest about why you're struggling with the things you're struggling with, there's at least a part of you that has contributed to the problem. And so my question for you this morning, the question that I really think is the question of Advent, is where are we supposed to look for hope? Where do you look for hope? What are you hoping for this Advent season? Are you hoping for that promotion that's finally going to honor the amount of work that you've put in at your company? Are, are you looking for that financial windfall that finally when you make this much money, life is really going to come together? Are you looking for that change in a relationship or a status? Like when you get married or maybe when you start dating or maybe when you have kids, like that's when life is going to flow. One of the challenges about looking to something, really anything, to hope that it will be that thing which helps us is that we ourselves keep getting in the way. There's a positive psychologist, uh, Maxwell Maltz, who suggests, based off of his work, he thinks 95% of us, 95% realize that we are inadequate to overcome the obstacles <laughs> that we are facing in our life. Isn't that kind of a heavy psychological thought? 95% of us, if we're being honest, when we look at these obstacles, we realize, I don't think I have the resources myself to solve the problems that I am facing. And this is true for you. I want to turn with you to this story that we are given in the Bible, this story of Christmas, this Advent story of hope, where unexpectedly we discover a sign in a person, and this person is given to us as a response to this question, where are we? Where, where is Israel? Where are we today supposed to look for hope? So in order to introduce this, I do want to uh, allow our artist in residence, uh, Betty Dickinson, to give just a brief introduction with this painting and encourage you to just sit with this painting and let it start to pull your imagination into the scripture that we're about to look at together. We'll go ahead and watch this video. Mary was a young virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. She was ordinary. In fact, most would call her lowly, from the underbelly of society at the time. She had no rights as an unmarried woman, no particularly noteworthy social status or family line, and came from a backroads town with a bad reputation, Nazareth. Yet the angel Gabriel appears to her and says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary, of course, was a little caught off guard by this, but the angel promises that she will conceive and give birth to Jesus. He makes this incredible proclamation that he will be the son of the Most High and that he will reign on the throne of David. She was going to give birth to the Messiah, the coming king they had been waiting for who would rule a kingdom that would never end. In Mary's shock, she asks, how can this be? Here we find Mary in the middle of this paradox. It is the most natural thing for her to conceive a child, and yet this is the most supernatural thing she could possibly imagine. She was built for this, and yet she is totally unprepared. Her response is quite practical. How will this be since I'm a virgin? Mary looks at her own limitations and asks God, how? How could you do the impossible? Mary feels her limits. If you're like me, when I experience my limits, I tend to bust out of them. 
I try to be all-knowing, all-powerful, and present everywhere. You should see me try to do Zoom meetings on the treadmill desk while eating lunch. I see my limitations as something to be overcome. But what if our limits are not an obstacle, but an invitation? What if our limits are the very place where heaven touches earth? So the rest of this morning, I just want to sit with you in this passage that's probably familiar, um, but just walk through it with us as we hold this feeling of inadequacy, as we hold our own limitations, and as we ask, where are we supposed to look for hope? Um, If you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 1. This is going to be verse 26. We'll also have it right up here on the screen for you. I'll go ahead and just read these first couple of verses to set the scene. This is verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, in this opening scene, uh, a couple of interesting things stand out. First, you might have caught in verse 26 that Elizabeth is mentioned. If you've spent any time in this Christmas story, Luke actually opens with this other couple, that has uh, an elderly wife, Elizabeth, who's clearly past the age of giving birth. They've never had any kids. Uh, Zachariah, her husband, is actually a pretty big deal. He's the high priest there in Jerusalem in the center of the religious and political power structures that Israel existed in. And so everything about Zachariah and Elizabeth is significance. Uh, Zachariah, as a man of prominence, likely would have been known uh, to the whole community that he and his wife couldn't have a child. Often it was quite shameful in the ancient world if you couldn't have a child. Normally it was assumed you'd done something wrong. And so for this couple, this power couple, they're in the middle of Jerusalem to not have a child, but then have this angel appear in which Zechariah is told, you will have a child, and Zechariah doesn't believe it, and so he goes mute for this extended period of time. Everybody probably would have been talking about and known what was going on in Jerusalem with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Yet this scene is a complete contradiction. Here we find Mary, who is betrothed, so engaged, uh, a virgin, so young, and not yet having been married or having had sexual relationships of any kind. And yet even in her introduction, we're not told who Mary's family is, We're only told who Joseph's family is. Joseph, the one she's engaged to, is a descendant of David. But Mary is simply a nobody sitting in Nazareth, which would have been a backwater village of a couple hundred people waiting to get married. Yet to this young, insignificant teenage girl, the angel Gabriel is sent And he declares to her, greetings, you who are highly favored. And then that final line, the Lord is with you. Now, I did a little digging on this. That phrase, the Lord is with you, only appears a number of times in the Bible. In fact, the places where it occurs are only with the significant heroes of Israel when they are about to embark in a costly, dangerous, fear-ridden task that the Lord needs to assure them, 
the Lord's tangible presence will be with them. So it shows up in the story of Abraham. It shows up with Moses as he's getting ready to lead the people out of the exile. In fact, uh, out of, in the Exodus. Yet the most significant one is actually Gideon, who himself is about to have an angel appear, and he's going to go through a series of tests, sort of doubting, and Gideon's not really sure if the Lord is right, and the Lord is telling him, I am with you. Yet here, to this teenage virgin girl, the Lord offers her the same blessing and the same presence. I, the Lord, am with you. Now, Mary, we're told in the following passage, if we move ahead to 29, verse 29, Mary's going to be greatly troubled. <laughs> I think that's a fair response to an angel showing up in your house. And she's going to wonder what kind of greeting all of this favor and blessing and significance of the Lord's presence is going to mean for her. Now this is verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, if you can actually step into this story for just a moment, what kind of feelings would Mary have being told as a betrothed virgin that she is about to conceive and give birth to a child? I don't feel like this is exactly my story to tell. Uh, I feel like those brave women here, even within this community, who have gone through childbirth and who have discovered the news that they are pregnant, whether they were prepared for it or not, uh, from my own, you know, side seat experience uh, sitting next to my wife who's gone through this twice. It's an intimidating moment even at the best of times with all of the preparation and all of the planning and all of the, yes, we want to have children. We're excited to have kids. I can't imagine this teenage girl being told you are about to go through child labor that is given to you by God. I mean, the, the overwhelmingness of it <laughs> is almost impossible to capture. Yet, I think that could distract and keep us from catching how significant this child is that Mary is told she's about to have. If you run through the phrases that the angel just gave her first, she's to call him Jesus, Yeshua. Yeshua literally means Yahweh saves. God saves us. We're, Mary's told he will be great and will be called son of the most high. Now there's two meanings to that. The first and most obvious meaning we might think of is that this child will quite literally be the son of God, which surely no matter how good Mary's imagination was, was not ready to contain that kind of a bombshell. It's more likely that Mary would have grasped that this is also referring to a deep cut passage we're about to look at in 2 Samuel 7, where David is told his children those who descend from David and who are kings in Israel will be like sons to God. Meaning that this child will be the son of David, the descendant, the king, the son of God that all of Israel has been waiting for. And you kind of catch that gist as the verse continues, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. 
I wanted to just give you a couple of these passages in the Old Testament to show you how this, this pronouncement to Mary is not just given in isolation, but is instead capturing all of Israel's story. So here first we have this passage I just mentioned from 2 Samuel 7. God is saying to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Isn't that kind of beautiful and poetic and intimate? And yet, don't miss the political implications of this. There is a throne of David's which God promises is going to endure forever. Now, this gets even more significant if you jump over to Isaiah. This is Isaiah 9-7, where Isaiah the prophet is looking out at Israel says a future is coming when God is going to return to us here in Israel. He's going to set up a king on David's throne, and this is what's going to happen. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah says, listen, the king is coming who's going to establish peace and justice and righteousness forever in this land. Now there's one more. This is over in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Just in case Israel was missing it, here's what Daniel says. And to him, to this coming king, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I mean, this promise is so big, so sweeping, so monumental that even the most faithful Israelite, probably in the moment of reading these words from Daniel, would have said, wow, like, I sure hope <laughs> this comes true, right? This seems like a bit of a stretch. I was just thinking about Elizabeth, who... Queen Elizabeth, who has passed recently, how her reign endured for 75 years. 75 years, one of the longest reigning monarchs in human history that just came to an end. I mean, surely you've been watching The Crown with me where we go all the way back and you're, you're like, she was alive then? <laughs> she was still going in that season of history? And yet, 75 years for a monarch pales in comparison to a dominion that will never end. And so, so track with me here. We come back to the present where Mary has just been told she will conceive and bear a child who will inherit this kingdom and will be the one that Israel was waiting for to enact this peace, this justice, and this righteousness forever. Now, Mary is going to ask a question that I think is very reasonable and demonstrates her pragmatism uh, that will be evident throughout her characterization in the rest of the New Testament. If you're looking with me, this is verse 34. Mary responds, how will this be <laughs> since I am a virgin? Now, it's kind of beautiful because Zechariah previously, in the beginning of Luke 1, responds to the same kind of sweeping announcement from an angel that his wife is about 
to have a child who herself is barren. She's past the age in which she could conceive and have a child. Zechariah is going to respond, this cannot be. He closes the door on what God has just revealed will be taking place in his life. Mary, on the other hand, remains pure and open to the possibility, but has just enough inquisitiveness to say, could you clear up a few details of how this is going to be? Now, here's where I want to just bring this sermon to a focused landing point and even bring it back to us as we're asking our own questions. Where should we look for hope and as we're facing our own limitations? The angel is going to give her two responses to this question. How will this be? And there are really for Mary two signs, two directions to point her to how God is going to move in an unexpected and extraordinary way to give her and all of Israel hope that God's salvation is coming. First response is this, is now verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, I think we've read the Christmas story so many times that we've probably gotten used to this point. The Holy Spirit's going to come. It will overshadow Mary. None of us really knows what that means. I mean, it's all a little mysterious and maybe open-ended, and we're not sure exactly what's going on here, but this is what the Bible says, so let's move on. I, I think this actually is more practical and applicable to our lives than many of us have realized. Because the truth of the matter is, in Mary's day, it was just as crazy to say that the Holy Spirit was going to help you conceive as it is today. There, there's nothing about our current, present, scientific, technological age that makes it any less believable then Mary would have been telling her friends, hey, so, you know, I asked, how's this going to be? He was like, the Holy Spirit. I was like, cool, like, let's move on. This is great. I'm sure we'll figure this out. No, no, this is entirely supernatural. This is entirely from God. This is mysterious as all supernatural invasions, as all miraculous invasions of our natural world are. And I think today we sometimes, even as Christians, can harden ourselves to the power and to the unexpected supernaturalness of what the Holy Spirit has to do in order for salvation, for hope to come to our lives. Yeah, if you're tracking with me, the point is not that the angel has now suddenly clarified a three-step process by which Mary is going to walk through a miraculous conception. No. Instead, the point is that God's Spirit which has been moving creatively in this world since the very beginning, all the way back to Genesis when the Spirit of God is hovering over the darkness. That Spirit is now going to hover. It's going to come upon Mary, and a new creative work is going to take place inside Mary's very body that will not be explainable, that will not be scientifically provable, but will be the miraculous work of God in Mary's life for the sake of blessing the entire world. Now, I, I share it that way because I think some of us this Advent season are actually more in need of the Holy Spirit to do something miraculous, something extraordinary. And I've, I've seen this look a lot of different ways. I'm not necessarily going uh, all the way out here to say, you know, time for the Holy Spirit to show up. You need a 
a big lotto ticket win, you know, you need a big like healing miracle, let's start making all this happen. No, I'm talking about the everyday present miracles when you are stuck in a relationship, when there's this conflict brewing, and then all of a sudden, if you've ever had these moments, I know I have, something just breaks through. Like something you say opens up the eyes of the person you're in conflict with. Or you have that conversation with a manager or a boss, and it felt like every time you've tried to talk about that thing before, it's never happened. But all of a sudden now, in one conversation, a whole new trajectory of hope has opened up at the work that you're doing. These are the kind of interventions that our God can do through a spirit who constantly is breaking in to our everyday realities and bringing forth new and creative life. So I wonder first for us, if we might not need to pray and hope and long for the Holy Spirit to come upon us this Advent season in the same way that Mary surely was convinced if the Holy Spirit doesn't appear, then none of what's being said is about to take place. Yet if I've lost any of you, as I know, surely whenever you talk about the Holy Spirit, uh, some of us some of us get really excited and some of us have our eyes roll into the back of our heads. That's totally cool. I understand. Uh, if I've lost any of you, the angel gets even more practical with Mary, which I think is a gift of God. The angel is going to say to Mary in the rest of the passage, verse 36, Now see, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is now in her sixth month, for no word from God will fail you. Essentially, if you're tracking with this, the angel Gabriel and what God has offered to Mary, not only has Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, but Gabriel's also said, and look, God has given you a friend to walk with you through this miraculous, difficult, troubling, and yet exciting thing that you are moving through. I wonder if some of us desperately need the Holy Spirit this Advent season to come and bring new creative life into our lives. Probably all of us just need a friend to walk with us through whatever it is that we're struggling with, whatever it is we're waiting on, whatever it is we're longing for, and wherever it is that you keep tripping yourself up when it comes to the obstacles in your life. I, uh, two years ago now, just two Christmases back, was in the middle of COVID. Uh, my wife and I had just moved to the UK. We were pretty isolated, alone as most people were. Uh, we were both struggling, working things out. We had our first child, we were pregnant with our second, we were moving through a ton of job transitions, we were near family, there was just all kinds of chaos swirling around us. And as a result, both of us, but especially me, was just deep in one of the worst mental health spirals I had ever been in two years ago, uh, this Christmas. And as we were talking, looking at the new year, asking, like, what, what do we need to do? This, this doesn't seem good, we need some help. Uh, I had a friend, who was trained as a therapist, who had moved to Ohio a while ago. He and I hadn't talked much uh, in a bit, but he was a good, close friend. And we sort of agreed, what if just to do something, what if I just reach out to this friend? We set up a Zoom, the dreaded Zoom. Uh, but in setting up a Zoom, we can have a conversation. I can ask him, does he know any therapists that I could try to get connected to? And what was so moving to me about this conversation, is 
said, I reconnect with this friend. I mean, he was just as kind and attentive and really tender to the season uh, as I needed him to be. I was able to hear what he had been going through the last couple of years. And we get to the end where I'm saying to him, you know, is there any therapist you know? I know you as a therapist probably can't counsel me, but like, uh, what can we do? I just, I'm, I'm really struggling right now. And he looked at me and said, you know, I'm pretty convinced as a therapist that the thing most people need when they're struggling with mental health is just a really good friend who could sit and listen to them. So I wonder if you and I should just intentionally make sure that we spend time over these next couple weeks where I could just sit and listen to you and hear what's going on. It's amazing how much in the middle of our waiting, in the middle of our longing, so many of our mental health struggles, our anxieties, the depression that we're feeling, how often what we truly need, what Mary needed, what God knew Mary needed in this season was a friend who could walk with her, who could understand her, who could know what she was struggling with, and who could help her. Now, my prayer and dream for us as a church is that the reason I think we exist here in this city, the reason why I think we are located right here in Lincoln Hall, in the neighborhood of Lincoln Park, is because I think as a church, we actually have the ability to be these kinds of friends to each other in these very seasons like Advent, where we are waiting, we are longing, we are looking for hope. So I wonder for you this morning, is it possible that you just need a friend? Is it possible that a friend could be the very thing you need to walk through this season of Advent? And even more, for those of you here who are a part of this community, is it possible that God could be calling you to be this kind of friend, to be an Elizabeth to a Mary who is walking through something unexpected, something extraordinarily difficult, and yet something that could alter the trajectory of their life and the life around them. This passage is going to end with this beautiful summary statement from Mary. She's going to say this in verse 38. To everything she's just heard, she responds, I am the Lord's servant. And she says, may your word to me be fulfilled. The angel left her. This really is the Advent lesson for us as we face whatever we're waiting on, whatever we're longing through. If we could follow the sign of Mary, Mary actually is to us the sign of hope. That if we could take all of the questions, all of the struggling, if we could be told that God's Spirit can come, that God's Spirit will come, that you may even have a friend right here in this room that could walk with you through this season, could you respond to the Lord as Mary does? That's what she's there for. She's there to teach us. I am the Lord's servant. I love that in saying, I'm the Lord's servant, she places herself fully submitted to God. She opens her hands which is the great struggle of Advent, to open our hands in the waiting and to say, Lord, I am your servant. Yet, don't miss that by being a servant, Mary sees she has a significant task to contribute. She has a part that she has to play. If Mary doesn't submit, doesn't offer her service to the Lord, then this miracle, this child, this king that we've all been waiting on does not come this Christmas. So this morning, 
I want to invite you to just close your eyes as we move to a time of communion to ask, what is it that you are waiting for? What is it you are longing for? Where are you looking for hope? And is it possible that the Lord's word for you this morning is to remind you that God's spirit can come, God's spirit will come, to remind you that you do have friends, that there are Elizabeths to walk with you through your own merry task, but that the Lord is teaching you, showing you in this courageous, young virgin who's betrothed the way to live a life following Jesus. And that is to say, I am the Lord's servant. Let me just pray for us. Lord, we ask you in our surrender to come with your spirit, to move this Advent as we wait and look and long for you. And I pray, Lord, that there would be stories right here in this community of the way that your power moves, that friendships emerge, that those who are isolated, those who are anxious, Lord, would come into the new life-giving love and community that your church has to offer right here in the city. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.